Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from 1 Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all may take a seat. If anyone is wondering if anything is wrong with me, the answer is partially yes, but that's normal. Church is just a good place to cry. So <laughs> I am, let's make church a place to cry again. It's just good to cry in church. I, I don't cry a lot in life, but I am very blessed by the hot tears that occasionally stream down my cheeks in worship, and uh, you're welcome to cry in church too. All right, I am, uh, I'm delighted to open this passage of Scripture with you in particular. There's a, a well-established pastor who after his dad, after um, he passed, his son said, my dad really only had one sermon. Nobody knows this, but my dad basically only had one sermon. And I basically only have one sermon. Or I should say, the message that's embedded in the Scriptures that we're studying this morning are for me my favorite sermon. And so basically every year, I'm going to find a way to talk about this whole theme of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It's embedded in the last phrase of the Apostles' Creed. Um, We wait or we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, or the last words of the Nicene Creed. And it's a topic I'm passionate about because it's a topic where we as the people of God have a lot of confusion. And so my message this morning will for some be simply a reminder of what constitutes Christian hope. Uh, For some people, it will be more than a reminder, it will be a a clarification. Uh, You maybe have a little bit of confusion about what it is that Christians believe about ultimate things. And to some people, based on some of the teachings you've heard, what I shared this morning is going to be a total reorientation, and I hope that it will be helpful for you. And the truth is, we need a reorientation when it comes to thinking about ultimate things, death and resurrection and heaven and all of those themes. We need a reorientation because as large and looming as death is in our world, What happens after it and what God is ultimately going to do about it is something on which Christians can be very confused. It's something that Christians, a topic on which Christians have failed to speak with clarity. 
And it's a topic where our imagination is often populated more with images from popular books and movies and TV shows than with what actually comes to us in the New Testament. And I'm very sorry if I'm about to ruin your favorite book series of all time, but I think the worst offender, the thing that has done more, more harm, created more confusion in thinking about Christian hope is the book series that was also turned into a movie that was called Left Behind. Left Behind, you all know. Now, I'm not ashamed of this. On two occasions, I found a copy of that series in a church library, and I took it out, and I surreptitiously removed it and placed it in the dumpster of the church. (laughs) Not one time, two times, and I do not feel bad about that at all. Rapture theology, the the idea of of the rapture is that at some point when Jesus returns, Christians are going to evaporate from the earth. And so if you ever watch the Kirk Cameron, I think Nicolas Cage, did he also make a Left Behind movie? Okay, no one watched it, okay. Um, The idea is that there's a Christian pilot, and when the rapture happens, boom, he's gone. It's like, oh, I hope they have a backup. Or, you know, mom or dad is, is there, and then boom, raptured, they're gone. And some of us who grew up in kind of the, the left-behind era had rapture anxiety. And so you're in the office, you go to the bathroom for a little longer, and you come out and everyone's gone. Is it the rapture? Or you go back to your house and everyone should be there and nobody is there. You're like, probably the rapture. I thought I would have made the cut. Rapture theology was not a thing for the first 1,800 years or so of the church, and it is largely based on a misreading of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which we're assigned to study today. What I want to try to do today is to read this passage, which perhaps some of us have avoided not knowing what to do with the rapture and that question. I'd like to try to read it afresh in alignment with Paul's intentions and the writing of the text and the Spirit's inspiration, and in alignment with Orthodox belief, how the church has understood the Scriptures for two millennia. And what I want to do is we're kind of unlearning is to relearn and to repopulate our hearts and our minds and imaginations with the rich hope of God's plans, that those hopes may be for us an anchor in our souls. So if you want to keep the Bible open, uh, I'm going to just go verse by verse, verses 13 through 18 this morning. It's going to be a fairly straightforward Bible study. So we'll be in 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians 4, verse 13 begins, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, apart from the general need for hope, we don't know if Paul had a particular pastoral concern uh, for the church in Thessalonica. As we read the letter, we, we get the sense that they're going through suffering, that they're facing adversity, and maybe just the prospect of perhaps dying as a Christian was looming large in their imagination. They had questions about it, and Paul wanted to bring clarity. Uh, We don't know if there was some brother or sister who had died and they were grieving as a community. We have to kind of use our imagination to fill in the gaps here. 
We do know that when Paul first went through Thessalonica, he preached the message about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and that message struck a nerve. This comes from Acts 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, God's anointed one, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Boring to read, terrifying to experience. This mob of people in a city that he's not familiar with rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble over all the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. So it gives a background that when the gospel comes to Thessalonica, and in particular, when the message about resurrection is preached, they picked up the political connotations that this meant that there was another king who would rival Caesar. And there was a violent uh, response to the preaching of the good news about Jesus. But throughout the letter, Paul's making reference to some kind of adversity or persecution. Something that I want you to note as you read verse 13 is I want you to note the way that Paul describes people who are dead and who loved Jesus. I want you to notice how he does and how he does not speak about death here. His preferred language here and elsewhere in describing the end of a believer's life is them being asleep in death. Asleep in death. It's an image of rest. You know, you love someone who's, who's battled with their health for a long time, and they finally depart. They've earned their rest. They're, they're at a place of, of bliss, of, of happiness, of restful happiness, one person said. So he describes the, the preferred language of the end of a believer's life as being asleep in death. And isn't it striking, especially for those of, up, those of us who grew up in typical evangelical circles, which trained us to believe that salvation is all about saying yes to Jesus in our lifetime so that when we die, we go up to heaven and not down to hell. Isn't it striking for those of us who grew up with that message that it does not say, now y'all, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have gone to heaven. He could have used that language and he didn't. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Now, some people may say that the idea of being asleep in death or going to heaven are, are, you know, just like six of one, half a dozen of the other, two different ways of saying the same thing. But there actually is a big difference. If you think about the imagery and the connotations of one being asleep in death and the other of having gone to heaven, the idea of going to heaven is that the dead person has reached a final destination. They're there. They have received the prize. 
Whereas the language of being asleep in death points to something different. To what does it point? Uh, Thessalonians 4, 14. He says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. What the language about being asleep in death points to is a point in history when the dead in Christ, those asleep in Christ, will wake up again. They will wake up and rise up from their rest. And isn't it fascinating what what Paul uses to justify the hope that those who are asleep in Christ will rise? Christian hope is grounded in the very stuff that happened to Jesus, which is why verse 14 refers to his own death and resurrection. Just as Jesus died and was raised to life, so the dead in Christ will rise. So those who sleep in death will rise to new life. And just as Jesus' body was changed... He had a transformed physical body following his resurrection. Our earthly bodies will be changed too. Go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It talks about the mortal being clothed in immortality, the perishable being clothed in the imperishable. The text says that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Now pay attention to this too. It does not say when God brings you to heaven, you will meet those who were previously dead. It says God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, hearkening back to the promises that were given at Jesus' ascension, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter, uh, verse 8, of course, is Jesus saying, wait in Jerusalem, you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes on you. After he had said this, verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes. He ascended, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. When Jesus returns, he is going to bring those who had been asleep in death, but whom he has woken up here. And I want to pause here and say something that is, that is very clearly in the Scriptures, that is scripturally accurate, But for those of us who have grown up with kind of a a sloppy or a confused eschatology, understanding of last things may require a little bit of getting used to. Heaven is not our forever home. Roll with me. Heaven is not our forever home. If by heaven we think of a place that is in another dimension away from the earth, Heaven is not our forever home. Heaven is for real, but heaven is not forever. Now, this example that I'm about to give may be a little bit too close to home for some. 
But you'll remember when the, the June storms came in, the Father's Day storms came in, many people in our city, several in our church, were displaced from their homes. My neighbor Gina, bless her heart, they just started construction, you know, reconstruction on her house this week. She's got a hole like you wouldn't believe in the roof of her house. The whole thing has just been utterly demolished. But go with me, Gina moved out and she's staying in an Airbnb across town. Heaven is a divine Airbnb while you're waiting for your forever home to get renovated. Are you grateful for it? 100%. Are you intended to go back home? You had better believe it. Heaven is for real, but heaven is not forever. Heaven is the divine Airbnb while you're waiting for your forever home to get renovated. Christian hope, then, is all about the resurrection of the dead and heaven coming to earth. And heaven and earth that were estranged at the fall of humanity, bringing, be, being brought back together and kissing, being brought back together in perfect unity. Verse, verse 15. According to the Lord's word, hey, that was really good, by the way. That was really good. And to begin to, to begin to let this into your mind and your heart, and to let the implications sink into your life, will change your life. It often happens to be the case that Christians who think that our ultimate hope is about flying somewhere else are often not getting their hands dirty cleaning up the mess we're in right now. They're often the most resistant to thinking that we should care for creation, often resistant to thinking that what we do with our bodies matter, often resistant to thinking about the significance for believers of works of justice and mercy and compassion here. Why? Because this is a hellhole that we're going to fly away and go to a better place someday. When the implications of resurrection and new creation theology begin to put their roots down in your heart, you will find a claim on your life has been made. This is revolutionary for the church. Okay, I didn't plan that. Verse 15, but it's still good though, okay? According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So two comments about this verse. One, Paul is saying here that God's first order of business when Jesus returns is raising the dead. That death is the ultimate enemy. That death is going to work in reverse. That the ultimate tool of the tyrant, the, the enemy, death, Jesus is going to deal with like from the very beginning of his return. It's his first order of business. And after that, he will tend to those of us who are alive at his coming. The second thing I want you to note is that embedded in this verse, in the, in the phrase, the coming of the Lord, is a critically important word to understand uh, New Testament uh, theology, understanding New Testament eschatology, ultimate things. And the word that's translated coming here, the coming of the Lord, is a Greek word called parousia, P-A-R. O-U-S-I-A, parousia. You could just go home and Google parousia New Testament, and you're going to see this word all throughout the New Testament. And parousia literally means presence, or it means arrival, or it connotes an official visit. Presence, arrival, 
an official visit. So they're all living in, uh, you know, Roman colonies. Thessalonica is a, a city in the Roman Empire. And if Caesar were to visit his colonies like this one in Thessalonica, it would be a parousia, that the king, who was usually absent in body but was present through his emissaries and present through his orders, would now be physically present to those over whom he rules through an official visit. Some of you have been around when, when uh, uh, the President of the United States comes to Tulsa. It's a big deal. People are on their best behavior. People are ready to receive the President. They know it's a big deal. We want to make a good impression. And it turns out that thinking about Caesar visiting one of his foreign colonies is actually a really great image to keep in mind in understanding the rest of this passage, the, the verses that follow. Verses 16 and 17 say, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, there are several uh, Old Testament stories doing some invisible work undergirding this passage. And then there's one other dynamic that I'll share with you. Several images doing invisible work. One of them comes from Exodus chapter 19. So if you know your Old Testament, it's just on the verge of in Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments being given. Moses and the people of God are assembled at the mountain and they know that God is going to descend on the mountain in smoke and fire and meet with the people. And the thing that signals the arrival of the presence of God is the trumpet sound happens numerous times through the, everything that goes on at Sinai. The idea of the trumpet sounding, the arrival of the presence of God, is invisibly present here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The second image that's here is, comes to us from Daniel chapter 7, in the image of the Son of Man, which was Jesus' preferred title for Himself, the Son of Man coming in the clouds or with the clouds of heaven. So you've got the trumpet got the Son of Man coming with the clouds. And the third image that, that Paul is deliberately thinking about, that the, that the, the church in, in Thessalonica would have recognized, was not something that comes from the Scriptures, but something that would have come from their own cultural memory and experience. And that is an official state visit from Caesar. So Paul envisions a day when the trumpet call of God will go forth, announcing the coming of the presence of God, well, Jesus will come in glory as the Son of Man with the clouds, bringing with Him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And He says, when that happens, we will meet the Lord in the air. Here is what Paul is doing here. Imagine that Caesar were coming to visit. He's, he's making his way down the road toward your town. Imagine that Caesar's coming to visit. Would it not be an insult if everyone, knowing that Caesar is coming, just waited in their houses and he passed by as they're sitting on their couches watching television? Of course, that would be an insult. They know that that's inappropriate behavior. So what they would do and what they did do is they lined up outside of their towns to greet and celebrate and welcome Caesar as he came, and then they would accompany him back into their towns in a festive procession. They are receiving their king, coming back, welcoming him into their town. 
Hospitable and warm people often do the same thing when you go over to their house for dinner. They do not wait for you to see yourself in. At the very least, they will meet you at the door, but they will often go outside as you're pulling up and welcome you to their place and then walk with you into their house. We are meeting the Lord in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, so to speak, not because we will move to the air, not because we will live in the air or in heaven. He didn't drive all the way here just to pick us up and leave. We're meeting the Lord in the air in order to greet and honor our King and welcome Him back as He brings His kingdom to the earth. And Paul concludes in this way, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We will be with the Lord forever. Where? Here. Read Revelation 21 and 22. In a renewed heaven, in a renewed earth. He's coming and he's bringing heaven with him. And the dead in Christ will rise. Now, let's say that I'm reading all of this wrong. And let's, let's just imagine that LaHaye and Jenkins and, and rapture theologians are the ones who are right. That when it says we will meet the Lord in the air, that I'm wrong, that it actually does mean that we'll be raptured, we'll go away to heaven. The implications of that, what that means is that God did make a good world, but we botched it up so significantly that He's like, I think this is beyond my repair. Let's go somewhere else and just start fresh. Does that message feel like a final victory? I keep thinking, I didn't plan this too. I can't believe I know this song as well. There's this Carrie Underwood song. It's like there's not enough rain in Oklahoma to wash the sins out of that house. I can't believe I know that. But it's like, that's what that means. God made this good world. It was good, 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 very good. He's like, I like it so much, I'm going to kick back my feet and just watch it. And we've so demolished it that he's like, even though I created out of nothing, I don't think I can clean this up. That is not a message of final victory. That is not a message of redemption. That is a message of, of like, to a certain degree, repression. Instead, it's kind of like, did you ever, I grew up on the Disney Robin Hood movies, or perhaps some of you watch Robin Hood Men in Tights, you know? But you know the Robin Hood story? It's kind of like in the story, the good king has gone away, and the wicked prince has stepped up to rule in his absence. And because the prince is a bad ruler and is running the show, other bad people like the sheriff of Nottingham are empowered and emboldened. And as a result of bad people being in charge, people stewarding their authority poorly, the poor suffer, and justice is thwarted, and a quiet resistance has to stand in defiance. But in the end, the good king comes back and puts everything to rights. And those who stewarded their authority in such a way as to make the poor suffer are put in their proper place, and justice is restored in the kingdom. This is what Christians believe will happen when Christ returns. When the earth's true king returns, he will bring justice to the earth. 
He will confront all of those whose, whose abuse of power has caused the poor to suffer in God's image and God's image bearers to be dishonored. God will cause war and violence and famine and drought and moral confusion to cease on the earth. And he will seize from tyrants their greatest power, which is the power to kill, as he who died and was raised to life causes the dead in Christ to rise again. And he causes all of our mortal bodies to be transformed to be like him. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 says, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, we will not all die but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, Paul's saying the same thing again. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Christian hope is the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of the heavens and the earth. This is Christian hope, and it is so much better than flying off because the human project just went so off course that God couldn't help it. And it's so much better than the idea of our, our, our ethereal body, our ethereal spirits floating on clouds. No, it's going to mean we get to hug the people we love again. It's going to mean the resurrection of those bodies. Jesus cares about the world that God made. Therefore, matter matters. Bodies matter. Justice matters. Mercy matters. The earth itself matters because he said it was good and he didn't change his mind. He's not going to abandon the whole human project. Christian hope is so much better than just flying off to heaven. Christian hope is heaven flying to us and the dead in Christ rising again. I want to offer you four brief encouragements as we think about the implications of resurrection theology, new creation theology. One of those is the one that occasioned Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, is that we as followers of Jesus who know the true story of the world will grieve, but we will grieve with hope. That's number one, is that we grieve, but we grieve with hope. Think about Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. John eleven thirty five, he weeps. Knowing he can and will raise Lazarus from the dead, who, by the way, went on to die again. Perhaps the only person to have, one of the few who has two physical resurrections. Jesus, still at the tomb, knowing what he could do and would do, wept at the tomb. Jesus teaches us that we can grieve, but we grieve with hope. And not only do we grieve the death of those that we love, those who are asleep in Christ, it's okay, and it's why we need to cry in church, to grieve the state of the world. Does it not feel like our world is teetering on the edge of a knife right now in so many ways? Is it not easier for our hearts to be discouraged about the state of things? 
We can and should grieve. Romans 8, we grieve with the Spirit, and the Spirit prays for us, and we don't even know how to pray, but we grieve with hope because we know that God is going to make all things right, that the problem of evil is a problem, but it's one that God is going to address when Christ returns in glory. Therefore, we grieve, but we grieve in hope. The second encouragement in light of the good news of new creation and resurrection is that we are meant to live in light of His return. In view of the reality that Jesus is going to return, we ought to carefully examine how we are to live. We're to live as those who are going to give an account for our lives. For those of us who are in Christ, we know that there's no condemnation for us, but we also know the secrets of all of our hearts are going to be laid bare. And so the Scripture uses images to describe how we are meant to live in light of the coming of the Son of God. We're meant to live as those who are sober, not those who are drunk. This is more than about alcohol. It's about being sober-minded. It's about being clear-thinking. It's thinking rightly, thinking wisely, thinking with discernment about our times. We're meant to be sober and not drunk. We're meant to live in the light versus living in the dark. Being living, living in the light means you're not, you have nothing to hide. Read 1 John and you see all these images of what happens in the dark. He wants us to live as children of the light. It's also this, this image Jesus uses a lot in his parables about being ready, keeping your, your wick lit, uh, being ready for the day when the bridegroom comes versus being lazy. Today could be the day. Oh, I hope it is. Today could be the day. There will come a day when it is the day. Therefore, be sober. Therefore, be in the light. Therefore, be awake. Therefore, be diligent. Be ready. Grieve with hope. Live in light of His return. The third encouragement I would give us is to persevere in doing good. That text in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Therefore we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The way this stokes my imagination makes me think that somehow in the wisdom of God, there is continuity in the present age with the age to come. That somehow any acts of mercy and justice and compassion that we do in the present age somehow have bearing on the age to come that somehow our labor is not in vain, that even for us, we know that death is not the end. Think about Hebrews 11 and those who didn't see everything that they were hoping for. Death is not the end for them. Their labor is not in vain. I'm in a WhatsApp thread with pastors from the Middle East, and I get to hear these stories of pastors from Algeria and Tunisia and Syria and Iraq, men and women, women who are presently suffering for the name of Jesus, whose churches are being closed down, who may die as martyrs, and their labor is not in vain even though they die because the dead in Christ will rise. And I think that for us, Whatever we do, imagine a single person who is bucking cultural trends and restraining themselves sexually out of reverence for Christ, their labor is not in vain. And for the parent who makes choices that makes them weird among their peers out of reverence for Christ and the way that they raise their children, their labor is not in vain. For all of us, those of us who persevere in hope despite evidence to the contrary, our labor is not in vain. 
We're meant to persevere in doing good. And all of us who in our own ways refuse to bow our knee to the God of this age, even if we are losers in the present age, we will be vindicated in the age to come. Therefore, we persevere in doing good. And then finally, my last encouragement is simply to recognize and to know that it is not all on our shoulders. One of the oldest prayers of the New Testament that's, uh, that's preserved for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we know that it was really ancient and, and prayed and preserved in the church because they, they retained it in its original language of Aramaic, is the prayer Maranatha, which means our Lord, come. And this is we begin to talk about the coming of the Lord or like the early rumblings of the season of Advent when we reflect on and we wait for and we meditate on the parousia of our Lord Jesus. When our King makes His visit to His dominion here and is present among us again, may God give us the grace to follow Him and the courage to persevere in hope and the wisdom to learn how to discern rightly, to live rightly in the present age, even as we wait for the age to come. Let's pray together. We pray our Lord come. Hasten the day when our faith will finally be made sight. How long, Lord, how long? The grieving mother prays, how long? The earth prays, how long? The poor who suffer violence at the hands of those who abuse their authority pray, how long? And we pray, Lord, how long until you make good on your promises? Lord, we pray that you would come Pray that you would come and be with your people today as we await your ultimate coming, that you would send your Spirit. May it please you to be near us by the Spirit and the bread and wine today. I pray that you'd make it be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Lord, come and be with us, we pray. Encourage those who are disheartened. Give hope to those who are discouraged. Unite all of us and help us to tease out the implications of the good news that you are our present and coming King. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.